Support for WRFA is brought to you in part by the United Ways of Chautauqua County. United Way is a nonprofit organization that mobilizes the community to help every person and family improve their lives. Donations to the United Way stay 100% locally in our community and get invested in more than 40 community-based programs. These programs help students achieve academic success, families to be self-sufficient and financially stable, and vulnerable households to get their basic and emergency needs met. The United Ways of Chautauqua County, proud supporters of community radio in Jamestown, New York. To learn more, visit uascc.org or call 716-483-1561. Good morning. So I, first of all, I want to thank everybody for being here today. It's, um, it's been a, a plan for about two and a half years yeah. during, during COVID. Um, oh, can I have my book back there? Oh, there it is. Never mind. I found it. So how this started is I read this book called Smokescreen. And interesting title. Um, I don't know. I'm not even sure how I found out about it. But as I read it, there was a lot of information in there about marijuana that I had not known about, that I learned a lot. So on a whim, I reached out and sent an email to Kevin Sabet. And... He responded, yes, he would come speak because Jamestown is the home of the 10,000 maniacs. <laughs> not because the sheriff asked him, or not because Chautauqua County is a great area, but because it's the home of the 10,000 maniacs. And I would take whatever we needed to do to get him here. Um, but then COVID came around, and uh, I think uh, Kevin was stuck in Canada for a little while. And I tried to get him to come here for the anniversary tour concert but he was in Canada so he's here now opening day of turkey season which is the only bad thing about it um, but uh, this event wouldn't happen uh, we actually have three seminars today it really wouldn't have happened without the help of Steve Kilburn and Katie Young because the heavy lifting was done in the last week and a half and I was in Myrtle Beach so um, and then uh, my administrative assistant, Reva Cusimano, the three of them really put this together as I sat in the sun. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a chance to review a little bit of the, the presentation. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, we'll have time at the end for some question, answers and questions, uh, questions and answers, however you want to say that. And, uh, but let me uh, give you a little bit. Th- this book also, we have copies, uh, $20 if you'd like a copy of it. If you need a loan, I'm more than happy to make sure you have a copy of this book because there's some great information in it. But um, a little bit about Kevin, and I'm just going to read this. If you bear with me, he's an affiliate of the Institution for Social and Policy Studies in the medical school at Yale University and dubbed by NBC News as the prodigy of drug politics, author, consultant, and advisor of three U.S. presidential administrations. Kevin Asabet has studied, researched, and written about the implementation implemented, and implemented drug policy for 25 years. He is currently the president and CEO, CEO of the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions and Smart Approaches to Marijuana, or SAM, two nonprofit organizations he founded with Congressman Patrick Kennedy. His latest book, Smokescreen, What the Marijuana Industry Doesn't Want You to Know, is distributed by Simon & Schuster, won the Next Generation Indie Book Award in Social Justice category, and has been 
option for a documentary film by a Hollywood studio. His upcoming book, One Nation Under the Influence, will be published by Polity in 2024. He is the only person appointed by Republican and Democrats to work at the White House Drug Office, and he is a columnist for Newsweek. He received his doctorate from Oxford University and a BA from University of California at Berkeley. Let's welcome Kevin Sabat. Well, thank you all for, for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you all hear me okay? Yes. Great. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here in Jamestown, New York. And the truth of it is, yes, I am a huge, huge 10,000 Maniacs, especially Natalie Merchant fan, but that is not the real reason I came. Uh, the real reason I came, no, the sheriff has done great work. And actually, I got my start uh, way out in Southern California uh, as a teenager in the 90s because of our sheriff, because of our county sheriff who had a program of uh, sort of integrating youth with drug prevention, which was actually very progressive and very innovative at that time. Uh, and he was really my mentor. And so I've um, always, you know, I always love working with sheriffs from, from across the country. And I know we have sheriff from nearby, I believe, Warren County, uh, Pennsylvania. So thanks for being here and probably others as well. Um, so that is the reason. But yes, I, I, it, I, I would be lying if I didn't say that when I saw, you know, Chautauqua County, um, you know, sort of my antennae went up because uh, being a huge fan and hearing about all the different places that, you know, a kid in California, I mean, didn't learn a lot about Chautauqua County. I mean, it's no, no offense. You wouldn't learn a lot about us over there either. But I did because um, I was a huge fan. So I was learning all about, you know, the Maddox Table Company, which used to be here, I guess, uh, the furniture company and, you know, Bemis Point and the trolley they used to have and, um, you know, all these things. And my niece is a huge Lucille Ball fan. So the cool thing was, if you saw a guy that looked like me this morning in front of the sign that said, Welcome to Jamestown, home of Lucille Ball, and a couple other guys, I remember, and then 10,000 Maniacs um, taking a selfie, that was me. So I hope it didn't violate any rules. You know, I stopped traffic or something right there on the street, but I, I sent that to my niece today. She's very happy about that. She's out in uh, New York City. But the, the real reason we're here, and I did appreciate the music in the beginning, so thank you. Uh, but the real reason we're here, of course, is I think to talk about, you know, mainly um, this issue of marijuana, which, you know, we may have different, there may be different points of view here, which is great, and I look forward to a, to a Q&A of any, any questions you want to ask. But I really feel like marijuana, while obviously it's not the fentanyl crisis we're seeing, which is killing more people, unfortunately, than we've ever had in this country, um, and in a way that we've never had. I mean, you know, it, it, even with the heroin epidemics we've had in the past, and we have had heroin epidemics in the 20th century, a few of them, um, certain never as deadly as what we're seeing with fentanyl. I mean, that, that what we're seeing is a whole new ball game, and it's very worrying, and I will talk about that today. Um, but, you know, you might be saying, well, why are we talking about marijuana? I feel like marijuana is the most misunderstood drug in our country right now. And I feel like we're at really an inflection point in history where we can decide what we're going to do. We can decide to either listen to the science and take a sort of slow, steady, uh, you know, science-based, evidence-based route towards the, you know, inevitable uh, embracing of marijuana that the, this generation and future generations seem to be having, you know, or we can repeat all the same mistakes of the past. And, and we have made in this country many mistakes when it comes to addictive substances. And I only need to mention three of the biggest killers that have killed more than any pandemic, more than any war, uh, more than any disease uh, or any issue in our country. And of course, that would be alcohol, tobacco, and prescription opioids. All legal drugs 
that have lobbying groups, very powerful ones. I worked in Washington three times, and I don't care if you're a Republican or Democrat, I'm neither, but if you, whether, whatever you are, the influence of these uh, industries is enormous. Um, and it is somewhat of a uniquely American feature. I mean, we are the home of capitalism. We're proud of that. That's a good thing, usually. But when capitalism and addictive substances come together, that is a recipe for disaster. And you know, alcohol, uh, you, know, you may be thinking, well, why wouldn't then, you know, are we calling for alcohol prohibition? I'm not calling for alcohol prohibition. But we have to, on the other hand, understand the, the, what we are sort of have agreed to with alcohol. Alcohol is not legal because it's safe. Alcohol is not legal because the sheriffs here say, you know, if only more people drank more often in our county, we'd be safer, right? You've never heard a mom or dad say, if only our, you know, our family drank more, we'd be better, right? So that's not why it's legal. It's legal because of an accident of history about 5,000 years ago. Uh, and so we're not going to turn the clock on that. And we tried to turn the clock on that 100, exactly 100 years ago. It didn't go really well because most people didn't agree to it. You couldn't turn the clock on something that had been in the fabric of uh, Western civilization since before the Old Testament. So it's here to stay, but it uh, kills as many people as fentanyl, and it has done so for the last century or more in this country and globally many more. Then we can look at another addictive substance. And, and I have a lot of slides, I'm sort of, a, if you just bear with me. Um, we have another addictive substance, of course, tobacco. Well, what, what, what about tobacco? That's been around for thousands of years, too, absolutely. Um, but it never was deadly until it was legalized and commercialized and industrialized. It was never deadly until, basically, the Industrial Revolution, when we learned how to put all of the tobacco leaf product and then we added some other things, too, to make it even more enticing. And we invented something called the cigarette. And we mass-produced the cigarette. And then we called our buddies up on Madison Avenue in New York City and other places to advertise it. And our buddies out in Hollywood to make sure every actor and actress smoked. And that normalization we still live with costs us, imagine, four fentanyl epidemics every year for the last 80 years is what that's cost us. 400 and 420 deaths a year still, even with smoking at a historic low. There's fewer adults smoking now than there has really been since in over 100 years, which is an amazing public health feat. On the other hand, it's killing more people than it ever has because lung cancer takes a while. Um, so we have that. And then we have what we went through in the last 15 to 20 years, which is the prescription opioid epidemic. And that epidemic was brought upon by people with million-dollar educations that should have known better, doctors, as well as pharmaceutical companies. And this move to, you know, we sort of go to some extremes. And, and, and so we, there was a move to get away from pain as an issue. And then there was, a, there was a backlash to that. We need to treat pain. And we do need to treat pain. And there is an absolute proper place for opioids. But OxyContin was always developed for hospital use only. It was not developed to take home, you know, when I dislocated my shoulder in the year 2000, trying to be a tough guy at the gym, um, I get a prescription bottle of OxyContin with, you know, 150 pills in it. That, that's not what was meant to be for a drug as powerful as that. And then you had pharmaceutical companies and their influence in health, I mean, you know, their influence in the healthcare system, as well as the political system, and that brought about the biggest prescription epidemic we've ever had, which has led to this current fentanyl epidemic. My point is when we legalize, commercialize, and normalize any substance, that increases its harm. 
the harm of a drug is not only the biological properties of the drug. It's the social context. It's the business context. It's the normalization, the cultural context. And you put all that together, and that, and that can be very powerful. So I think with marijuana right now, we have a drug that is very misunderstood because so many people have used it. But the vast majority of people who have tried it have tried what I call old marijuana. And the stuff that's being used now, which I'll talk about, is the new marijuana. And the new marijuana is, you can argue, fundamentally a different drug than what you know, people smoked at Woodstock or what you would call old marijuana. And I think we need to raise awareness about it. I also worry about, and I'm acutely aware of where we are right now and the economics of where we are, I, I, I worry and I'm very skeptical about the idea that any addictive drug, or really any one thing, but especially something that's an addictive drug, and marijuana is an addictive drug, I'm very skeptical about the idea that it can bring economic prowess or you know, bring back um, sort of financial security for a community. Because I've never seen that happen anywhere in the country where it's been tried. And let me tell you, New York wasn't the first place to legalize marijuana. Um, and it's been tried in all the old gold rush towns of Colorado for the last 10 years. And the result has been a fabulous F minus on the grade scale in terms of this bringing any kind of economic prosperity. I mean, it pains me when I was in I was in Buffalo last night and I drove here and I wanted to take the scenic route, you know, avoid the toll and take the scenic route. It's 10 minutes longer. That's OK. Um, you know, and you drive along the, 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 the road here and you see the, the you know, you see Indian country and you see all of the marijuana shops clustered there together. I mean, first of all, what message is that sending? to kids, number one, and to kids that have a really bad hand in life already. It reminds me of when you know you go to South Central Los Angeles and you see the liquor stores all clustered together with payday loans, gambling, and you can't get a you know fresh apple for 10 miles, or there's no grocery, real grocery store. But you can get a drink, you can get a pack of cigarettes, now you can get, a, you can get marijuana. Um, you can gamble and you can get a, a payday advance on your, uh, uh, on your paycheck for the low interest rate of 27.5%, right? And you look at that, that's what that reminds me of. And, you know, the idea that this is bringing prosperity to anybody other than a couple of guys from Wall Street that frankly look, probably look a lot like me, um, other than a few of those shareholders and early investors in this, uh, other than those folks, and frankly, big tobacco, which I'm going to talk about, that's heavily invested now in marijuana. The idea that this is going to be bringing rural prosperity, suburban, urban, farmland. I mean, I've, I've heard it all, especially in New York with such a diverse landscape. Um, really, I think it's a fool's errand. And that's, I'm, I'm showing my cards now. You may disagree. But from what I've seen, I think it's really the wrong way to go. Um, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip through this, but you know, obviously drug problems in our country, first of all, substance use uh, is you know, the leading cause of preventable death. It's tied to 70 other chronic illnesses. It's something that we really need to take more seriously as a country, uh, and we really don't. Uh, we, you know, we, we think about this, it is a brain disease, but we think about this as totally separate, from, you know, as a, the brain being completely separate from the body in some ways. Um, we don't take it seriously, even though the brain is the most important organ in the body. And um, we, we really, 
still have not reckoned with, and I'm talking about substances in general, the seriousness of this issue. If we did, you know, it wouldn't be a um, stretch to say that insurance companies, you know, should cover mental health and addiction the same way they cover, you know, a broken elbow or a broken hip. Um, that the brain is part of the body and that should be expected. But we have been very slow to acknowledge that in our country. And so obviously drug problems are different in the in context of what the drug is, um, et cetera. And they have no easy answers. That's also why I'm very skeptical of the idea of drug legalization generally, because it just kind of just sounds like a very easy answer. It's like something that would fit on a bumper sticker. And usually if a policy proposal fits on a bumper sticker, it's good politically, very good politically, but very bad from a sort of outcome point of view. Uh, and and that's, that's really what, I, what, I, what I'm concerned about. Um, we started SAM, Smart Approaches to Marijuana, uh, to basically provide evidence-based you know, public health knowledge. Um, and uh, you know, we have a scientific advisory board. So everything I'm talking about today is really backed by science. It's backed by reputable researchers from universities around the country that are studying this. Um, and yeah, I think some of the formatting was off, but that's, that's okay, you, can, you get the point. Uh, we collaborate with uh, major medical associations uh, from around the country, law enforcement, et cetera. And as I was talking about, this is really the kind of marijuana that I'm not talking about. I'm not talking about the old marijuana. I'm talking about the new stuff, the products that we're seeing, the THC-infused candies, cookies, gummies, ice cream, sodas. Um, the potency levels have just ballooned. It's an order of magnitude or more different now. And so we're not talking about a pl harmless plant, um, which by the way, you know, people say it's just a plant. You've probably heard that, right, from kids or especially, right? I'm seeing the counselors and the teachers in the audience that it's just a plant. I mean, it's natural. Um, you know, next time someone says it's natural, I mean, you should remind them that poison ivy is natural as well. Um, there are a lot of natural things that are not necessarily something that we want to embrace. Sharks are natural. I don't want to ever go any, anywhere near any sharks. Um, a lot of natural things are not really actually meant for human consumption and they can be very dangerous. And this is not only not natural because we've completely changed the element of the plant. That's why actually I don't call it cannabis. And I have a whole thing in my book about why I don't, even though I'm a scientist, I don't call it cannabis because cannabis is the original genus name of the plant that probably derives from thousands of years ago. We know that, you know, early cannabis with very little THC in it that was mainly hemp um, was, you know, used by some civilizations like in Egypt and China thousands of years ago. Um, but what is out there today is just does not resemble that plant whatsoever. When you look at, you know, things that you're putting on the end of a hot knife and a blowtorch that are basically waxy substances that are pure THC concentration, that's not really what we're talking about with a plant. And whether you want to listen to a Republican Surgeon General or a Democratic Surgeon General, the science is actually very, very clear. This is the Surgeon General under President Trump. This is the Surgeon General under President Obama and the Surgeon General under President Biden, actually. It's the same guy, Vivek Murthy. And the things that they're both saying are, the, I mean, you know, they don't, they, they probably don't agree on a lot of things as you can, you know, with our politics, especially in the last three years, four years, but um, they agree on this, that marijuana is something that should be avoided, especially if you're under 25 while your brain is developing, that it can be addictive and that there's a message out there that it's just, I mean, you have to be blind and deaf to not know that the message out there is so clear coming from the industry that this is harmless, that it's not only harmless, it's good for you. 
uh, and it's something that should be that should be advanced. And so, wherever your politics is, when it comes to and, and public health has been significantly politicized in the last couple of years, wherever your politics are on, on these public health matters, on this issue, if you really are listening to reputable scientists, then what I'm saying is not controversial at all. But to the average American, it's very controversial because the average American has been fed this stuff from the industry for the last 40 years. And um, you know, I wish, I wish the average American read the New England Journal of Medicine you know, before going to bed every night or you know, Lancet Psychiatry, which is the top leading psychiatric journal in the world, or the World Health Organization from the UN report, you know, or the, in our country, the Institute of Medicine, the National Academy of Sciences. But that's not happening. Instead, we're you know, thinking that this is stuff from the old days and we're not really understanding what's happening right now. And that has resulted in an unprecedented number of people using marijuana every day. And, and that's my issue. I really could care less if you're an adult smoking a joint in the privacy of your own home, if you think it, especially if you think it might help with something medically. By the way, medically, what we've seen is that it's basically placebo. Um, that essentially, uh, except with extreme cancer pain and nausea related to chemotherapy, which there is use of a THC pill, which I fully endorse and have no issue with that at all. But in terms of using medical marijuana from a state-run dispensary, which if you think about it is really weird because we don't have dispensaries for any other legitimate medicine. I mean, if you want an Advil, you go to CVS. You don't go to an Advil dispensary, right? Um, you, if you want morphine, you go through a pharmacist to a pharmacy. You don't go to a morphine. I mean, you used to go to a morphine. In like 1810, we went to morphine dispensaries. But, you know, we've kind of reformed it. But for some reason, this is apparently a legitimate medicine, and yet it's run by people, usually with barely a GED, but with a lot of experience in using marijuana, that have no medical experience at all, and are now giving medical advice to people who are hearing that this is good for you. I mean, to me, that is public health malpractice if I've ever seen it, but we've co totally and very oddly embraced that. We've also embraced the idea that we should vote on medicine, which is very weird to me. Imagine if we voted on COVID vaccines. I mean, whoever had the most money to run a campaign or give money to a legislature would win. That's how we're gonna determine our medicine. It makes no sense. And no disrespect to legislators and elected officials, unless you're a biopharmacological scientist, you are unqualified to determine what a medicine is. You should not be voting on a medicine. And neither should the, av not, neither should the average person. I shouldn't be voting on a medicine. That's not my specialty. We have a an established scientific process, but we have completely gone around that, and we think that's normal. Um, and the, the reason we've gone around it, and it started in my home state, California, in 1996, is because we're very compassionate people as Americans. So if you hear somebody that needs something and they get on a commercial and, you know, I mean, unbeknownst to you, the commercial is being paid with millions of dollars by special interest groups, but someone gets on there and says they have breast cancer and they need marijuana. I mean, I would vote for it without knowing, you know, without thinking about some of these issues. And that's really how this whole thing started. But now, as a result, we are dealing with not the adult that smokes a joint in the privacy of their own home, which, as I said, I don't have a problem with, as long as you're not getting in a car or you know, affecting someone else or taking care of a kid, which is actually a huge issue with parents using in front of children. Big issue now. But my issue is mainly with the fact that our levels of consumption, the amount of marijuana we are consuming, has skyrocketed. And if you think about a comparison, if you look at the typical marijuana user in this country, 
20 years ago, 20 to 25 years ago, the typical marijuana user, meaning the majority of people who said that they ever tried marijuana so the, uh, in the last month, so the typical regular user, not the person that used in college, but the typical regular user, was basically using the amount of caffeine found in a 20-ounce, like a, what you get at the gas station, 20-ounce bottle of, of Coca-Cola. That was how much caffeine. They, if you think about the THC, I'm just doing it as a comparison. Now the typical user is consuming the amount of THC, if you think about caffeine, found in like 33 Grande Starbucks cappuccinos. That, that's the difference. So it is more than an order of magnitude. It's a level that you could not have predicted. And that's just because of this rise of commercialization and advancing this. Um, let me go back here. And you know, when you think about why we're using and is it addictive and what does it do, we know that, first of all, in our brain, we know that we have receptors in our brain and the rest of our body. Um, and one of those receptors is a CB1 receptor, and it binds to THC. So when you ingest THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana, marijuana has hundreds of ingredients in it, most of which we don't even know about, but one of those uh, ingredients is called THC. That's what gets you high. And it gets you high because it binds to these receptors all over your brain and body, and it produces that feeling. And you have opioid receptors in your body, and then you have other receptors. Anyhow, marijuana essentially is binding to very important receptors in your brain that deal with movement, sensation, vision, coordination, reward memory, your judgment, which is your prefrontal cortex, Reward and memory, by the way, are essentially the brain centers that deal with addiction. Because what is addiction? I mean, addiction is you feel good. I mean, addiction, you have reward. That's why people are doing it all. That's why people want to keep using drugs. It feels good until it doesn't. But it feels good. And you remember that it feels good, memory. And so you do it even in the face of maybe very horrible consequences. Or you do things that you would never normally do. You steal from a family member. You put your kid in danger. You get behind the wheel. You, I mean, you do things that if you weren't on that drug, you wouldn't be doing. And that's why we, you know, I think of addiction as something that hijacks the brain. It really it takes over from your normal judgment. It doesn't mean you can't recover from it, and recovery is incredible. It's the opposite. You absolutely can recover. It also doesn't mean that you don't respond to incentives. Actually, addiction is really interesting. It's not like Alzheimer's disease, which is another brain disease, where, you know, if you have an Alzheimer's patient and you say to them, I'm going to give you a million dollars if you remember my name tomorrow, that's not, the Alzheimer's patient will not respond to that. Or if you say, I'm going to put you in jail for a month if you don't remember my name tomorrow you're gonna to have to put them in jail because the Alzheimer's patient will not remember you as a result. Addiction is a little bit different. That's why it's still, I mean, in many ways it's a mystery in some ways. I mean, so we know a lot about it, but we're still learning. Addiction can, it depends on the person and the context, but it can respond to incentives actually, unlike something like Alzheimer's disease. And an example of that for, is uh, drug courts. And I'm not sure if you have a drug court here in Chautauqua County, you do. So drug courts is a way, is it about incentives. It's saying you go to the treatment program and you won't go to prison. But if you don't go to the treatment program, don't show up, or you test positive, you will have you know, some jail time or whatnot. I mean, that's an, believe it or not, for, for most people, that's an incredibly powerful incentive for them to stop using. Um, I mean, think about George W. Bush, who I worked for once. I mean, he 
very openly what was an alcoholic. I mean, that came out openly later, but he wasn't open about it at the time. But he was an alcoholic. And then people said, well, why did you stop drinking? And, he, and it was, did you go to some fancy treatment center or something? No, he didn't. Well, why did you stop? Well, I stopped because my wife, Laura, my young wife at the time, we were young, uh, was basically threatened me very credibly to leave me if I didn't stop drinking. And that was powerful enough for him to stop drinking. So not everybody can't respond the same way, and that's not saying if you don't respond, you're weak and you deserve punishment. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying that unlike a lot of brain disease, incentives and, and consequences actually matter. And when you think about policy, that means policies matter too. Because if there are zero consequences and it is purely openly embraced, you have very little incentive to want to stop to do, you know, use it. That's why like um, parental influence, peer influence, family influence on people that are using drugs is very, very powerful and important. Anyhow, marijuana binds to these receptors and, you know, and, and affects your brain. And your brain is developing until you're about age 25, in some cases a little bit later. And while your brain is developing, anything can affect it, positively or negatively, that can affect it very profoundly. So you know, when you want to learn a language, it's a lot easier to learn a language when you're three years old than it is when you're 33 years old, or definitely than it is when you're 63 years old. Not that it's impossible to learn a language when you're 63 years old. People do it all the time. But it's a lot harder than when you were three years old. Um, most people who are very good at sports, they didn't start their sport after age 30. I mean, some did, golf and something like that. Okay, I get it. But people that have mastered music and sports and things that, where your brain is just the central organ there for it, they do so, they started when they were young. And the younger, the better, actually, uh, as your brain is developing. That's the good news about brain development. The bad news is that negative influences can also affect you for a very long time. That's why we care a lot about childhood trauma, frankly, more than adult trauma, because childhood trauma is harder to get over than adult trauma, even though you might have been a long time ago. But that's because it was happening when your brain was developing. It's becoming really a central part of you. Not that you can't recover from it. Again, same with addiction. You can, but it's harder. And, and your brain is malleable when you're younger. So any substance to come into interplay with your brain before age 25 can really have the potential to do more damage than if you started later in life. Um, that's why anybody who's contemplating using any drug, I just say, well, try and wait till you're 25. I mean, ideally never use it, but if you're going to use it, really try and wait. And by the way, if they wait until they're 25, if you can get your kids through even 18, they are unlikely ever to use drugs. Very few people have a substance use disorder who started using a drug after age 21. Even people who were addicted to OxyContin and the prescription pill epidemic who were overprescribed pills, in other words, they wouldn't have been addicted if they weren't overprescribed, they weren't seeking out drugs, but they were, they were overprescribed and they got addicted. Even those people, most of the people who ended up being addicted because they were overprescribed, they had a prior addiction of some sort, alcohol or something else. Because, by the way, me included in this, the vast majority of people overprescribed, just like I was when I was 20 years old, we didn't, have a, we didn't abuse the drugs. We took them back to the sheriff's department. We unfortunately flushed them down the toilet. We did anything we could. We didn't want them. I didn't want after I took one and it didn't, I didn't like how it made me feel. I didn't want anything to do with it. But I didn't have a prior addiction that made me vulnerable to that. 
And so that's another reason why in this country we need to take this issue seriously, because we have people with huge histories of substance use disorder, and their doctor never asked them about it. They ask them about everything else, but they don't ask about mental health or addiction. And that is just, we are paying such a dear price for this massive oversight that is the, is the combination of sort of complacency, laziness, status quo, money, cost. I mean, all of these things, we're paying such a dear price, way more than it would cost to do a training for medical students, which they're beginning to do. But we should have been doing that for the last 50 years uh, on addiction so that you know, your doctor asks you the question about your history. Your history is very important. So the, my point being, the drugs that interact with the brain early on have an ability to really be damaging. And a, I'll guarantee a 12-year-old, a 15-year-old, is not using fentanyl. <laughs> That's not where it starts. It starts with the drugs that are the most accessible. And the drugs that are most accessible are alcohol, marijuana, and now, to some extent, vaping nicotine. It used to be cigarettes, but not anymore. You talk to a high school student, cigarettes, ugh. ugh. Smoking's disgusting. Smoking marijuana? Well, that's healthy. That, that's the change we've had. That is just, it's profound. And, um, to, but that's why, that's why the brain is so important. And the, these are actually brain scans of people who, um, it, it's lit up, who, who have THC. So you can see where it's, where it's lit up here, the red and the areas of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, the other areas, reward and memory of where this is the, the THC is binding to the brain. We know that, again, the earlier you use, in fact, this is a recent study that actually among youth, marijuana is becoming more addictive, much more addictive than alcohol or nicotine products, including vaping. And this was a study that just came out last year that shocked the NIH researchers that did it. Um, because again, we think of marijuana, even some of the researchers, we think of it as certainly more benign than alcohol, more benign than, than, than vaping nicotine, when in reality, you know, whether it's benign or not, or, or, or not, the rates of addiction among young people who use these substances, you, this is saying that you're much more likely, in some cases, twice as likely to, to be addicted to marijuana as a young person than you are the other drugs. We know that one in three people in the United States, of all, everybody 12 and older, who, try, who have used marijuana in the last year, in the last year, one in three of those people fall under the criteria of cannabis use disorder. That is basically what we call addiction. Now, how do they know that? Well, this is what's interesting. If you ask people who are using, the number would be like one in 10, meaning 10% of people would, would say, yeah, I probably use too much, I, I shouldn't. And, I, and, then, and then so they would fall under that. But how they get one in three is, <laughs> you ask them whether they, you, they think they're addicted, but then you ask them like 10 other questions which actually are the definition of addiction. You know, like, does it interfere with work? Do, do you think about it? Does it preoccupy your thoughts? Do you need to have it, like, in the morning? Do you need to have it to go to bed? Do you, you like, you know, use money you would use for something else, but you buy the, all these questions that they call the DSM, which basically define what addiction is. When you ask people those questions, you actually get a number that's one in three. <laughs> not one in 10. And that also tells you about something else about addiction, which is that it is denial is the hallmark of addiction. Like that is what we do when we're addicted. We tend to deny that there's any problem at all. You, we've all known alcoholics who say they're not an alcoholic, right? Um, and this is the same thing with, with other drugs too. And with marijuana, it's even sneakier because, because we think of it and see it as benign, 
we we're much more likely to deny it and our family's more likely to deny it our society is in complete denial that it's a problem so when society is telling you when your governor and your you know social media are both telling you that this thing's great that there's no problem with it well of course you're going to be denying that there's a problem with it until things might get really bad and then it's much harder to come back from it when things get really bad not impossible but much harder than earlier on and that that is something i worry about the societal message um we know that in legalization states the prevalence of marijuana use disorder in kids 12 to 17 is about 25 percent higher than in non-legal states so what that tells you is that policy does matter it's not the only thing that matters um, so I don't, 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 don't mistake me for saying that, okay, because it's legalized, everyone's going to use it now. Like if cocaine was legalized, you're not all going to go try cocaine. It doesn't mean that, but over time, what it does is that it, it normalizes. And, you know, it, also companies are, are very smart at how to acquire you as a customer. You know, if you, anybody watch Shark Tank? The number one question after, you know, what's your revenue is what are your customer acquisition costs? And you can almost hear Mr. Wonderful say that. What are your customer acquisition costs? Customer acquisition is very important in business. And so, you know, the sheriff from Warren County talked this morning about a story about the free samples at the gas station. That's very important. By the way, crack dealers used to do that too. Because crack wasn't even a known thing. Crack was a new thing in the 80s. It was, you know, cocaine and baking soda in an oven. That's crack. And so nobody knew what that was because cocaine was always snorted. What do you mean you want me to smoke it? It's a rock. You want me to smoke it? Well, you got to get the samples out first to get people addicted. And that's what this legal industry is doing. I mean, the alcohol industry does this all the time with sponsoring events and sports and even at colleges and things like that. Tobacco used to do it all the time. Free samples was a huge part of the playbook of big tobacco. And the marijuana industry is doing the same thing. It's very important. We've seen big increases in youth marijuana use in the states that have now over six, seven, eight years, because it takes some time to do the data collection. It's not gonna happen overnight. Again, it's, the normalization is a little bit of a gradual process. Ask me in 20 years what the final impact could be. Right now, it's still early. But the early indications are not good. I, you know, I wish I could say the early indications showed that things were okay. The early indications are not good in, in these states. Um, we have studies showing, for example, the other big concern is the concern about mental health and marijuana. So when you look at something like, which we've never used to have, psychotic episodes with those people, kids especially, but anyone using today's high potent marijuana, the Lancet came out with a big study, five times more likely to have a psychotic break if you're using high potency marijuana than if you're not using and that was in london and they defined high potency marijuana by the way as 15 percent potent which is plenty potent but in the u.s our high potency is much higher than that but even with the 15 percent potent they were finding that um they were finding uh anxiety depression i'm gonna, I'm gonna keep going high school completion university entrance scores not surprising that you are more likely to have worse results. By the way, I'm not trying, this is not like reefer madness, doom and gloom, that anyone who uses this is going to not graduate high school or you know do really bad on tests. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying it's about risk and probability. So think about the example, and I know we have a lot of law enforcement in here. Think about the example of speeding when you speed. 
okay, which I've never done. <laughs> but if you speed, are you definitely going to get into a car crash? No, you're probably not, actually. For every second that someone speeds or every instance of speeding, you're like 90% or more of the time going to be scot-free in that instance, okay? But why do we have speed limits? Well, we have speed limits because when you do, first of all, we have speed limits because we want to discourage speeding. That's the first thing, which is a good thing. Why do we want to discourage speeding? We want to discourage speeding because if you do speed, you're much more likely to get into a car crash or have a negative outcome than if you don't speed. That's how I look at a lot of this data. It's not that this is a sure thing, but you're taking a risk. And yet, at the very least, you should be informed of that risk. And right now, sadly, our politicians want nothing to do with informing us about the risks, because that's uncool and they're not going to get votes. I mean, I, it's true. And the industry certainly doesn't want to admit to any risks because that's going to hurt their bottom line. What industry says, you know, this is unsafe. I mean, imagine if an airline said, you know, we're pretty good, but once in a while we crash, but you should fly with us. And that would be honest, but they're not going to say that, right? Or what politician gets up behind a lectern and says, today I'm going to talk about all of the negative aspects of the policy that I've been pushing for the last 10 years. You know, that's not going to happen, right? So we don't talk about those things, but we, that's, that's, that's why we're talking about it today. Uh, another risk is tobacco and lung cancer. Most people who smoke don't get lung cancer, but a lot of people do, and that's why there's 400,000 deaths a year, and that's why their probability of lung cancer is much higher. If you're exposed to lead paint, you're not definitely going to have a six-point reduction in IQ, but you're going to have a much elevated possibility of it. That's why we're sure that you're not allowed to have lead paint anymore. Not everybody exposed to lead paint went below average in IQ. Most didn't, actually. But enough did, and the risk was serious that we said no more lead paint. It's the same thing with this. Not everyone, everyone reacts differently. But you should know what the probabilities are when there's studies done among thousands and thousands of people. This was the IQ study for marijuana. Interesting, lead is about six points. Marijuana's eight points. Regular marijuana use in adolescents, that's the risk. And eight points is enough to take you from an average student to a below average student. It's over a million dollars in lifetime income lost. I mean, there's real, ramifications when you think about intelligence. Um, but again, the industry uses <clears throat> sympathetic people <laughs> to push their agenda. So the latest sympathetic group of people are veterans who suffer from PTSD and injuries of the brain, body, and mind, and have you know sacrificed their life for our country. And so the big thing was, well, you know what, marijuana, in some people we know, it reduces your anxiety in the short term. It takes the edge off a little, like a drink does for some people, right? And so the line that they're pushing is, yeah, it kind of chills you out, so we should be pushing this. Well, when you actually, when scientists do the studies on, on veterans and marijuana for PTSD or other injuries, they actually find that even, in the, even if in the short term, meaning immediately, you sort of have some quick relief, in the long term, it's completely the opposite. It's totally contraindicated. It's causing more problems of depression. It's causing more anxiety and other mental health problems that, and, and the, the, the things that prolong PTSD, basically. Even if in the short term, and again, alcohol is the same thing. I mean, you know, you could, <clears throat> plenty of people would call two shots of whiskey medical, 
<laughs> in the immediate you know, medical whiskey. But we would never <coughs> think of that as medicine um, because we know that in the long term, it doesn't help. Does somebody mind throwing me a uh, the bottle of water right there? Thank you. Sorry. <coughs> um, thank you. You know, I talked about what we've been dealing with. All uh, right, maybe I didn't talk about it here. Someone earlier this morning, <coughs> since the pandemic or during the pandemic, uh, of the this huge uh, issue of youth and youth suicide and self harm. We know that during the pandemic, we've seen record rates of self-harm and suicide, which is very tragic. Well, we know that marijuana now does not help with those things, and it hurts those things. The number one drug in Colorado for suicide attempts and, and suicide, um, what they call, like, uh, carried out. <coughs> the number one drug is not alcohol. It's marijuana. Even though alcohol is much more ubiquitous, actually. It, but it's marijuana. Double. Did marijuana cause a suicide? We're not, not ever, we're not saying that. Although I have met plenty of moms who will tell you that marijuana did cause suicide in their young sons, but you know that 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 I'm not necessarily saying that. But it's very much connected. And 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 during this pandemic, you know, we're just throwing I think uh, gasoline on the fire. <clears throat> One of the arguments I heard actually in in Jamestown, um, and I think there are well-meaning people who, by the way, I'm not. So there are well-meaning people trying to make a living, growing this, wanting to sell it. They don't think it, I think most of them do not think it's a problem. The, the, the sort of mom and pop shops, they probably think it's wonderful. They're not trying to like deceive you. My, my beef is who's trying to deceive you are the people that funded legalization, the people that the industry itself, the big industry, not the mom and pop shops, which are frankly very small players in this whole thing. But I read somebody here saying that you know this could be helpful to take people off of, they called it narcotics, meaning you know opiates, and that's a, you know that's a that's an intuitive argument, right? Like, okay, someone wants to take something, we'd rather them take the thing that's not going to immediately kill them, like uh, like a prescription drug could, and it's like an opioid could. So at least let them take marijuana, and it's a very seductive argument. And if you have to choose the lesser of two evils, you would say, and if that was the case, anybody, I, me included, would say, yeah, I guess if you have to choose between the two, I'd rather you take the thing that's not going to cause a fatal overdose. It can cause overdose, but not a fatal one. Um, but then now we've done studies, um, many, many, many studies. And these are all published in peer-reviewed journals. This is like legitimate, where we, people looked at um, opioid users who are using it for medical purposes and then how marijuana interplayed. And basically what we're finding, so in, yeah, there was a big study in young adults, which is really interesting, um, that basically found that actually when the young adults, the group of young adults that used marijuana had more opioid, opiate relapse than those who didn't, which is counterintuitive to the idea that marijuana can substitute for opiates. And th these were some of the reasons I just thought were interesting. One kid said, each time I relapsed on weed, I would immediately think heroin is so much better. And that's interesting because, you know, your brain, there, there's like, people have always said, like, well, why are people using marijuana first and then going on to other drugs? Is it because it's available? And I think that's one big reason. It's just the thing that's there. But the other interesting thing that we're looking at, and this comment speaks to that, is what's going on in the brain biologically. And is there something in the brain that says, yeah, this THC thing is great and all, but what I really need is something more. I mean, there's a point where you need something more. And it's true that opiates are more seductive in some ways than certain, especially medium percentage THC to your brain. So 
this makes sense then. Your brain is saying, actually, I want something else. Um, you know, smoking weed was like a little tickle and started the cravings for heroin in motion. If I'm already getting high, I might as well be getting really high because opiates are better. Weed was just not enough and accelerated my need for a heroin high. I mean, th these kinds of comments, and these are only a few from that study, um, really kind of illustrate that perhaps biological connection that scientists are really looking at now. And there are many, many other studies. I, I, by the way, all of this I'll make available uh, to the sheriff's department who can distribute it to anybody who wants it. Um, but there are many, many other studies showing that, you know, um, the, for example, twice the risk of opioid use on days that marijuana was used. Um, so there wasn't a substitution. Uh, and there was a, there's a Canadian study about 20, looking at 23 studies, meaning over 3,600 participants showing that um, marijuana did not reduce their opioid use, et cetera. So there are things that like sound okay, that like sort of, again, the average person, yeah, if you're not studying this, the research, yeah, it sounds okay. Like marijuana will substitute, or even alcohol. I mean, that actually was the number one argument, was people will drink less if you give them marijuana. That's the alcohol, you know, marijuana is safer than alcohol. We should provide that alternative. The problem with that is that it's not an alternative at all. It, it, when you look at all the studies in the states that have legalized, when you look at revenue for alcohol, when you look at individuals, so macro, uh, micro, individual, macro, the revenue overall in the state for alcohol, as marijuana is more available, alcohol use goes up. So it's, it, these are compliments. And to those who study addiction, that's not that surprising because we know that addiction is very rarely one drug. You know, once you get to the point of needing treatment, it's not usually not because of one drug. It's a combination. It's polysubstance use. Uh, these are all acting on the brain in very, very similar ways. And so that, that's not surprising at all. Um, yeah, I mean, marijuana use prompts the need for more anesthesia. That was a study for a couple years ago uh, during surgeries, etc. cetera. Um, very quickly about these industries, and then I do want to get to questions. I have many more slides, but I've been going off script a little. Again, just kind of reiterating the combination of these industries. This is a timeline of anyone, you have, all, have you all heard of Juul? No, the vape that used to be okay. So Juul actually started as a marijuana company. Does anybody know that? <laughs> it's really interesting. And then they broke off. Um, but my point in saying this, and this is the whole timeline, if you want to read the specifics of the business plan, uh, the, my, my whole thing about it is that these, these industries are linked. Um, you can go to our website, actually, and we do a sort of in-depth, and it's in the book, of these tobacco companies and how the tobacco companies are all invested in marijuana. Altria has an almost $2 billion investment. Um, I mean, the media has had to admit it. In fact, uh, this article actually said that, you know what, that group Sam was right. They caused it. 10 years ago, they said this would happen, and actually they were right. I mean, they, and this is not, not an author who was very friendly to us, but she had to admit that you know, the predictions were true, that tobacco was essentially buying up marijuana. Um, on and on and on. There's so much evidence of this. And it's because they need an alternative product line. You know, they need something else. Smoking is not cool anymore. You know, um, we, there are no smoking sections in restaurants anymore. I don't, I mean, not here and not really anywhere. Uh, we don't have smoking in airplanes anymore. Um, you know, that's a very big change in public health behavior in the last 30 years that most of us grew up, except for the young lads here, but most of us grew up when we'd go to a restaurant and they would say smoking or non. That was the first, not high, it was smoking or non, right? And that is totally changed. And so smoking is not cool at all. Record low numbers of smoking cigarettes among kids. 
you know, there were, there were schools, I don't know about here, but in, certainly in California, which prides itself as being like on the public health vanguard, the schools in the 80s, the high schools, there were smoking sections. There were smoking patios for the seniors. I mean, this was not something that was really discouraged. Um, but now it's changed. And so they need an alternative product, and so they're going to do that. And alcohol needs another product, too. By the way, we're drinking a lot less in this country than we used to as well. There's just been an overall, like, you know, even though addiction is the worst it's ever been in terms of death and destruction and mental health, we're actually drinking and smoking a lot less than we ever have. Um, that's because there's other things that we're doing that are not good. But, um, but, but the alcohol industry needs an alternative product line, too. So there are the biggest alcohol companies are all invested in marijuana. And it just brings me back to the old tobacco playbook. Again, the advertising, um, you know, uh, first of all, they, you know, tobacco used to say it was medicine as well, by the way. Um, there were Dr. Batty's asthma cigarettes, if you can believe it. Um, <laughs> cigarettes for asthma. <laughs> um, sounds, you know, isn't that, isn't that great? Um, you know, a health cigar. I mean, th th these were things that were advertised very openly. Um, we had celebrities. Actually, I did want to bring Lucy, Lucy and Desi. No, no. I mean, this was very commonplace. This wasn't bad. I'm not saying what they did was bad because it wasn't bad in that day. It was completely accepted. Um, we, you know, we use celebrities. We use, I mean, these are, I mean, look at Jackie Robinson. I mean, these are, these are revered people in Americana. But we were so under the spell of thinking that tobacco was so awesome that this was totally normal. In fact, it was abnormal if you didn't do it. And we're in that same place with marijuana right now. That's why I said we're in an inflection point in history. We're in a very interesting time in history where, I mean, again, our revered politicians, celebrities, and others are all very much using um, cartoons. We had cartoons. I mean, you know, the Flintstones it smoked. Um, this was something that, that kids watched. I mean, we had kids and babies as part of tobacco advertising. And that, that's how... You know, we're just like, how is this? And I show this to anybody under 30, and they think this all photoshopped. They don't even believe that these are real. Um, but they were real. Uh, you know, sex, cells, you know, when, all, all, all the things, um, free giveaways, as I talked about. I, I'm showing you all this from tobacco to now to just show you quickly marijuana, where we are, is we're repeating the same thing. It's medicine, the marijuana doctor. I mean, all of these advertisements that we have. Um, the celebrity endorsements that are all there now, um, uh, you know, I mean, this guy won the Heisman Trophy. Now he has a brand, you know, the high, you know, high man or something like that, high man. Uh, th you know, this is where we are now in society. And so no wonder we see the consumption levels go up to where we are. No wonder young people think this is okay. This is even a, um, it's not, not NHL, but uh, it's the league below the NHL. That's a marijuana company advertising at a sports game where obviously there are a lot of families and young people. Now they're trying to be discreet because they only have the marijuana leaf like one part. They're not allowed to do the full leaf, but they get around it. And anybody can Google what that is in two seconds. And so this is, this is the same kind of thing. This is about Santa and kids and marijuana and rainbow colors. And um, I mean, go to Instagram. And the, what else do you need? I mean, it, you know, the, what we're seeing today is just a modern version of what we saw with tobacco. And so that's why I'm saying as a society, you know, we, we have a choice. And it's very hard to police this. I mean, the idea that we're going to be policing this and taking it down is very, 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 very hard to do. But we're just seeing the mass advertising, the giveaways, um, 
all of that. And it, 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 it contributes to something that I like to talk about called addiction for profit. And I talk about this in the book as well, where it doesn't take everyone, not everyone needs to be addicted to a product in order for your product to be successful, right? Think about um, airlines. Again, I'm going to use airline analogy. Uh, you know, 80% of the miles flown on any airline, what percentage of people fly 80% of the miles, do you think? It's not 80% of people. It's 20% of people. And that's a principle in public policy called Pareto's rule. It's called the 80-20 rule. Basically means that in a lot of things, 80% of the action is done by 20% of the actors. Okay? So the addictive industries are the same thing. Alcohol is the same thing. In fact, for alcohol, it's even more stark. 10% of the U.S. population consumes 75% of the alcohol in this country. So the alcohol industry does not need everyone to be alcoholics or you know, heavy drinkers. They, they just need a certain percentage, and they end up making a lot of money, but they need to make sure that percentage keeps using very heavily. So there's no incentive for them to have adults use responsibly. That's why I always laugh when I see the drink responsibly or enjoy responsibly. If everybody enjoyed responsibly, half these businesses would be out of business because that's not how they make their money. And with marijuana, it's the same. This is a report in Colorado. 22 plus 8, 30% consume 87%. Yeah, the red and black, 87% of the total marijuana sold. So again, it's a minority of users that use the vast majority. And that is, that's the addiction for profit model. There are a lot of other things. I, I, I do want to get to, to some questions and stuff, but there are a lot of other things that are important that I haven't touched on a lot. Social justice is very important. That's how this was sold in Albany, that we were right there in the front. We stopped it for four years, and then we ran into a big political problem in 2019 with the governor, and then they, they passed it. But basically, um, if you want to talk about social justice, the people that are inhaling the secondhand smoke and the thirdhand, to, thirdhand means like, like not necessarily in your face, but in the environment, the walls, the ground, the tablecloth, the clothes, the whatever, which is also is, by the way, harmful to be exposed to that. Um, they're usually kids that are poor. I mean, that's just the truth. Um, you know, weed is much more Walmart than it is Rolls Royce. That's how cigarettes or the tobacco is the same thing when you look at demographics. And uh, we're looking, there was the recent NYCHA New York City public housing study, and it showed that 67% of residents report repeated uh, constant smelling of marijuana in their homes, um, kids reporting it constantly. And by the way, kids are going to the emergency room in states that have legalized marijuana because they're getting their hands on these gummy bears and these candies as well. And that's kids of all demographics. Um, and that's requiring hospitalization. If you think you know what you're getting when you go to a dispensary, I, I have news for you, you really do not know what you're getting. The amount of pesticides, mold, by the way, the environmental destruction, which is ironic because a lot of young people who think marijuana is no big deal really care about the environment these days. They don't realize that marijuana is the most water intensive plant you can ever imagine. The amount of energy used is, it rivals the coal and oil industry. I mean, it's. The, the, the indoor grows are incredibly destructive. The outdoor grows are incredibly destructive. Uh, and so this, this idea that there's like an environmentally friendly way in terms of mass production, I'm not saying that there isn't somewhere that does it better than others. I'm sure there is the odd greenhouse somewhere that's learned to become somewhat sustainable. But in terms of 
the mass, sort of the majority of the product, we're talking about something that's very environmentally unsustainable. But again, beyond that, what's actually in the products, you really don't know. And the reason you don't know is because states were never meant to regulate drugs. And I know it's not popular these days, but this is the reason why we have the Food and Drug Administration, which has a lot of mistakes and can be problematic, and I'm not saying it's the end all, but there's a reason why we have a federal government. And that could be unpopular to say too, but there is a reason we have a federal government. And I'm all for states' rights and local rule and all of that. But we have a federal government to take care of the things that states are not equipped to take care of. States are not equipped to adequately make sure that you know the labeling on the Advil at CVS in Millerton, New York, is the same as Jamestown, New York, which is the same as Honolulu, Hawaii. I mean, there's a reason we have like a central way of labeling our food and our drugs, and that the Foster Farms chicken you get in California is this, just as safe as the one you get here. And we have bypassed that with marijuana completely because we've said we're going to legalize something that's illegal federally. And because we can't legalize it federally, we're going to legalize it on the state level and take it into our own hands. No state, and I know New Yorkers are so, I mean, I was seven years living in the state, prideful, rightfully so, of our state and of the capacity it has and the economic giant it is, but no state is equipped to regulate their own food and drugs. It's just not what you're equipped, you don't, not set up for it. I don't care how many offices of cannabis management and how many experts you bring in, and they are, many of them are very well-meaning people trying to do their best. I've met many of them. Even though I don't agree, I wish the office didn't exist. Many of them are well-meaning government workers, but that's not what they're meant to do. And so that's why when anybody samples, whether it's the media or once in a while the FDA will, for example, sample like CBD products to see what's in it, anytime things are sampled, it's always, there's always problems of mislabeling, but also of molds and pesticides because it's very easy for your marijuana to become moldy, very. I mean, you have to watch it. The way you grow it, is, it's, it's, it's delicate in that way. And it's so water intensive. And you, you know, I, I interviewed in, for the, in the book a bunch of um, workers at dispensaries and former workers and current workers even, and also the labs. I interviewed heads of labs contracted with states because states said, okay, in our wisdom, we're gonna contract with this lab and you're gonna tell us if the marijuana is safe and what's in it, all of that. And there's this sort of facade of safety that like we're, and, but it's really just checking the boxes. Because when you talk to the lab owners like I did, they tell you, some of them, that actually they're in cahoots with the industry, or they were. So now they're revealing it. They're like whistleblowers now, or they work there. And they say, yeah, we used to just kind of basically, for the right price, we would give a report that the state and, um, I mean, the state didn't know it at the time, but that the state and the, the industry wanted to see. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen. I'm not saying there isn't corruption or that doesn't happen on the federal level. Of course it does. But, you know, again, it's much more likely to happen on this level. And, and we are seeing that, and people, you know, again, I just tell people, buyer, buyer beware. Um, I have a whole chapter where I interview, so, uh, talk about social justice. I talk about the fact that in places that have legalized marijuana, there are still disproportionate arrests. So if that's a problem that you think is a problem, that doesn't go away when you legalize marijuana. Um, it has not reduced the prison population at all. 
Why? Because people are not in prison for marijuana use. That's, not, that's a huge myth. There are arrests for marijuana, and we can talk about whether we should do that and how we should do that and if we should do that. That's a legitimate discussion. But this idea that if we legalize marijuana, we're going to empty our prisons, I wish. That would be wonderful because it would be a great way to reduce incarceration costs, which are very high. But the reality is that's not happened. President Biden just pardoned, you might have seen this last, it was a couple months ago, did a federal pardon of all marijuana convictions for the last 30 years on the federal level. Do you know how many people were released from prison on the federal level for that? Zero. Because no one was in prison for marijuana. If they were in prison for marijuana, they happened to be there for like 133,000 pounds of marijuana along with the cocaine and methamphetamine. So they weren't released. Do you know how many people even were pardoned who had like convictions from the last 40 years that were pardoned? It was something like 6,000. And again, the average on the federal level were very high amounts of marijuana. They just happened to be ones that were let out because they were not in prison because they didn't have other drugs along with them. My point is that we're not, if we want to reduce incarceration, which is a lofty goal, and I think we should, uh, you don't do it by legalizing drugs. It's just, it's not going to, even, even other drugs, by the way, folks are not just in prison for drug possession. That's not a main reason why people are in prison. Um, state prisons, drug possession is about 7% only for drug possession. Obviously sales is a little bit more than that. But again, most of those people have other convictions that are keeping them in prison as well. It's not only drugs. Um, well, you might have thought, and this is what New York is desperately trying to do. New York is throwing millions of dollars at trying to get minorities and ex-convicts into the marijuana business. Now, I have some issue with the idea that we want people that have been convicted of drug dealing to be part of the legal business. There are probably some of those people who, okay, they would and they'd be fine. But there are a lot of those people with ties to the underground market still. And if you're trying to separate these markets and not have gangs and the underground mafia involved in your legal industry, you may not want to go to the people that are like the kingpins of, the, of that. And a lot of these people are not just streets. They were not just street sellers of a you know, little bit of pot. And in fact, the state is encouraging the most severe of those to apply. So that might backfire, I don't know. But what I can tell you that it's definitely not gonna do is make a lot of minorities rich, which is the reason why they're doing that. One of the other reasons why they're doing it is we wanna bring people of color, we wanna give them economic prosperity so they should own marijuana businesses. It's not how it works. Because the people who make the money are the much higher people, number one, the people higher up on the food chain. Number two, you have to have millions of dollars of loans and capital and all kinds of things to be able to be anywhere near successful, especially in the New York market. So that's not happening. So the media is finally reporting what we've been saying for a decade, which is that this is not happening. There's not about black owned pot businesses being you know, out there and folks making money. And, and they're admitting that this idea of social equity and licensing is really an idea doomed to failure. And they've tried it in Illinois, they've tried it in California. Again, I know in New York, we think we can do things better. Maybe we can, but I, I don't know. It's failed everywhere that it's been tried. I also take an issue and you know, several of the, of, um, frankly, black people on my staff take an issue and other people in the field with the idea that the only time we want to talk about economic prosperity in black and brown communities these days is to talk about it in the context of marijuana. 
Like, why did it take that to talk about these businesses being owned? I mean, it just, it just we're not getting to any of the, we're throwing things at the board and hoping they stick and calling them, you know, different things for what they are. The reality is this has been pushed by people, again, who look much more like me than they do people who live in NYCHA housing, et cetera. People, like, people that look like me who are putting on a social justice button and saying that's why I want to legalize marijuana because all of a sudden I care about equality. I, I don't buy it and really it's pretty obvious that no one really is buying it but they're going along with it. Um, when you look at the pot shops, like I talk about liquor stores with alcohol, when you look at the pot shops, they're in poor communities, often in communities of color, but poorer communities is where they are. Okay, no one in a, in, a, in a community that wants to see real estate and businesses prosper, how many people go to their realtor and say, you know, I want to buy a new house. Can you make sure it's near a marijuana dispensary? That's not something that you ask your realtor to do. You don't say you want to be near a liquor store or a payday loan, it's not even about the marijuana, it's just about what this brings. And so when you look at Colorado, when you look at California, whether it's, well, that's Southern California down here, extrapolated, the marijuana stores are all concentrated in the poorer communities. And to me, that's not social justice, that's social injustice. Um, again, because you are essentially offering a life of addiction to people who have a very bad hand in life as it is. And so if they get caught up in stuff, it's a lot worse than if I had gotten caught up in stuff from Orange County, California. If I had gotten caught up in stuff, my parents could have gotten me a treatment program and I would have had three other chances and you know, uncle would have given me a job downtown LA and I would have gotten myself back up together. If the kid in South Central LA gets caught up with it, good luck. That's the same thing when I was looking at in Indian country on the way here. That's not something that is going to be lifting people up. And that, again, we just, that's why, you know, if you want to legalize marijuana because you just want to smoke some weed in your farmhouse up in the Hudson River, you know, Hudson, New York, and you go to Brooklyn and then you go to Hudson on the weekends and you want to smoke some weed and you're, you know, 45 without kids and whatever, have a blast. I mean, I, care. I really don't drive and whatnot, but I don't care. But let's not pretend that we're experiencing and encouraging social justice when we do it. That's the part that really gets me. Like, just call it what it is. You want to smoke weed. I get it. Okay. But that is very, very different than saying that you want social justice or economic prosperity. And it's tricking cities and towns who have come onto hard times, who you know, were industrial powerhouses 50 to 75 years ago, who are now seeing marijuana as the latest thing that might, that, that might bring them up again. It, it, you're, it's not gonna work. And it's very much, I said buyer beware for the person going to the dispensary. I say buyer beware to the city leadership or state leadership that thinks this is gonna get you out of hard times. It may be a temporary band-aid in some places in some small way, but it's gonna cost much more in the medium to long term and it's not giving you a sort of um, you know, a uh, 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 foundation of prosperity. And by the way, you're not the first person to do it. I mean, that's the other thing. You're not like the first alcohol company to be established after prohibition. Okay, the first three are still around today and they're the most prosperous. That's because they were the first three. But this idea that it's gonna be bringing it back, I, I just don't, I don't see it. 
by the way, the underground market, you know, they say, well, at least we'll get rid of the drug dealers and we'll get rid of the cartels if we legalize. Because, you know, we don't have alcohol dealers. So maybe we'll get rid of, I mean, we have moonshine, but we don't really have alcohol dealers. So maybe that'll be the same thing. It's not the same thing. It's totally different. Alcohol has not had an underground market in 100 years, a mainstream underground market. And it only had that for a small time during Prohibition, which was only 10 to 15 years. So it never really got to where the underground drug market is today. The underground drug market today is transnational criminal organizations that are dealing with human trafficking um, and, and frankly, dealing with other legal. Do you know what the number one source of revenue for Colombian cartels is? It's not cocaine. It's not even guns. It's their illegal activity in the legal mining and logging industry. <laughs> so mining and logging, that's legal. There's a legal way to do mining and logging. But they are involved in the gray and black market of that. And that's how they make most of their money. They also grow coca and deal with cocaine and you know, bring in fentanyl from China through Mexico and all that. Yes. But that's not the major and so this idea that we'll sort of get rid of the drug dealers and the underground market if we legalize marijuana it's not happening anywhere again maybe new york will be different maybe you'll buck the trend of the 22 other states that have all failed i, I don't know but in california which also claims to be a big economic powerhouse their underground market is thriving more than ever and they're like well, how did this happen this was supposed to not happen we were told it would go away well, when you increase the overall demand so much because you've legalized something and you've made it easy, accessible, normalized, legal, the, the, your, your legal market will not keep up with that demand. And it cannot compete with the illegal actors who don't pay taxes, who have no hours, because they work all hours, uh, and who will deliver it. And it's convenient. I mean, just there's so many reasons. And so that's what we've, we've seen. So I, you know, I worry about that. Um, that's the drug cartels. And you know, we've seen in Oregon, for example, eight, only 18 to 30% of their mar marijuana is sold legally. I want to go ahead. I have a lot of other slides about living near dispensaries. For example, when you live near a pot shop, you're more likely to have kids who use. That's not surprising to me, but the studies have shown that. You're also more likely to have crime. Um, and again, but I just like to show the pictures of people who are actually making money. These aren't black-owned businesses. These are not small farmers in the Hudson River Valley. These are, not, th th these are guys in Wall Street and Silicon Valley who are laughing all the way to the bank. By the way, they don't touch marijuana. They don't use it at all. They would never use it, they say. <laughs> and that, by the way, is the same thing with the cigarette companies. You know, most of the cigarette executives, they didn't smoke. Some of them did, and you saw them at the movies and stuff. But most of them did not smoke, which is really interesting. Um, and there are some really interesting stories about that, too, that I'll say for later, but if you're interested. <clears throat> it took the anti-tobacco movement 30 years, 40, 50 years, more than that, to get the Clean Indoor Air Act so that in public places we did not have cigarette smoke, right? That's why we can all breathe pretty openly right now without coughing, etc. The marijuana industry is peeling tons of those regulations back. Why? Because they want to have a hotel that's, you know, 420 friendly. They want a lobby where you can use marijuana. Well, that's, you can't do that because there's smoke, but they're getting exemptions. Um, also outdoor clean air as well, exemptions to all of those laws too. Um, so I think there's a false dichotomy between legalization and incarceration. I don't think it's either or. I'm not calling for incarceration. I want to be very clear. 
I'm not calling to arrest marijuana users or give them a criminal record or, I mean, in fact, I would like those, if there were records for those with low level possession, I think expungement is totally appropriate. We want people to get their lives back together. We want them to get access to housing and healthcare. We don't want them to have a stain on their, on their background if they've gotten their life together. I think people in recovery of any substance should be encouraged, uh, not discouraged because of a mistake they made that they happened to get caught for you know, 30 years ago. So that, that's no question. But this idea that we have to go to one extreme or the other, I think, is getting us into a lot of trouble. Um, so I love this quote from The Economist magazine that says, while laboratory animals are an expensive way of understanding the risks of cannabis use, North Americans come free. Because <laughs> the rest of the world is looking at us. You, know, you might think, well, they've legalized it in Europe. They have not legalized it in Europe. Uh, the Netherlands has, a, has had, of course, you, know, you all know about Amsterdam. They've had a weird system for 40 years that it's illegal to grow marijuana, but it's legal to smoke it in certain coffee shops. Other than that, there really is not what we're doing. It's, it's completely new. It is completely new in this era. Canada, where I live most of the time now, even though I'm American, has federal legalization and has had so for the last four or five years. But it's very different than here in terms of advertising, in terms of products. Um, it's just, you wouldn't, honestly, Vancouver feels like it kind of always did. It does, you really wouldn't know other than there are some shops here and there. But it's very, very different than if you go to Denver or you go to certain, you know, LA or the Bay Area in California. Um, very, very, very different. So where are we in 2023 overall? I want to shift a little bit from my last five minutes and talk about just drug policy generally. Um, you know, this idea of openly embracing drugs and legalizing marijuana, it does not stop at marijuana, okay? We're gonna have the same forum here probably in five years, and I'm happy to come back, to talk about psychedelics and hallucinogens, or maybe sooner than that, okay? So that's the next drug that they're, but then beyond that, states are really pushing the envelope. Oregon did something that they called decriminalization, which is a misnomer actually, where they decriminalized all drugs, but they sold it as treatment over incarceration, treating addiction like a health issue. Does anybody disagree with that, even in this room? Of course not. We all think addiction is a health issue. We, I would venture to say even our law enforcement would prefer people to get treatment if they're addicted rather than go behind bars. That's not controversial, but they sort of make it sound controversial, like you can be cool if you vote for this as treatment. Since, and there's a, we have a whole video on our YouTube page about what's happened in Oregon in the last two years. Um, in this new program that was supposed to be treatment for all, less than 1% of people in this new program are going to treatment, right? The program is basically call an 800 number, which apparently someone will tell you where you can get help if you want it. Like if you're caught with drugs, you call an 800 number. If you don't call it, you're fined $100. And that's it. That's the, that's the new law of any drug, possession of any drug, fentanyl. And so what has that done? Well, first of all, it's increased drug dealing because every drug dealer has this exact amount that can be personal use, number one. Number two, it has vastly increased open air drug selling. And you look at Portland, look at some of these places in Oregon, the open air drug markets are more than they've ever been. And number three, people are not getting help at all. There's no incentive for them to call the 800 number, $100 fine. By the way, if they don't pay the $100 fine, there's no follow-up. So really, it's no fine. And who funded this initiative? 
Was it funded by the treatment and recovery community who all want treatment over incarceration? They all want treatment over incarceration. Was it funded? No, it wasn't. It was opposed by the treatment and recovery community. It was funded by the same people who funded the legalization of marijuana, both here in New York, actually, the same organization, and in Oregon, the main national group that funds these things, because they want to see the legalization of all drugs. But again, they have to go little by little. They couldn't have an ad campaign saying, we're legalizing fentanyl, vote yes. Right? Not good. But they could say, people suffering from a substance use disorder need treatment, not incarceration. Vote yes. Well, that works. It's like putting the breast cancer survivor on TV and saying, vote for marijuana. It works. And it's brilliant. I mean, when you have endless amounts of money, it's, it's, it's easy to do these things. So they did that. Um, then there's this, this, this idea, and they started it in New York, that's um, very controversial, and there's a lot of different opinions on it, about what they're calling, I mean, I call it uh, the objective term, I think, without sort of being pejorative or positive, is calling it supervised injection sites. Some people call it safe consumption sites. Sa safe implies that using drugs in this form is safe. It's not safe at all, so I don't call it safe. Some others call it, you know, like drug dens, like opium dens. It's kind of derogatory, so I don't use that. So I say supervised, because that's what it is. It's a place to use drugs. It's what 100 years ago, it was an opium den. Now it's the modern version, but I don't call it an opium den. Um, supervised injection sites, where you go, if you're using drugs, you bring your drugs. Someone is there to administer it, give you clean needles, bleach, whatever you need, uh, um, you know, tie-ons, spoons, whatever. And if you overdose, they're there. This is the, the, the logic. If you overdose there, they administer Narcan. How many of you in here know what Narcan is? Does everybody know? Almost everybody is. Great. Right? It re reverses overdose with some opioids. And, you know, you know how Narcan works. We have uh, in our brain stem, which controls breathing, we have opioid receptors. I talked about the receptors earlier. Thank God we don't have cannabinoid receptors, actually. But we have opioid receptors. So when the opioid binds to the receptor, it can stop your breathing there. That's why I said, thank God we don't have kit, because that would have been for THC. But we don't have cannabinoid receptors in your stem. So, but we have opioid receptors. It binds. If you stop breathing, which is essentially you are overdosing at that point, because you're stopping to breathe, Narcan gets in there and breaks up that bind. And in about 91% of cases, people are breathing again, right? So it's incredible. So they have Narcan there to distribute if you overdose. My problem with, over, with, with supervised injection sites is that not that the staff isn't well-meaning and it usually isn't coming from a good place. It usually is. My issue is I think it is such a small drop in the bucket of the overall problem that we're spending resources and energy and time on something so small number one. Number two, it is, it's the same kind of thing. It's really a very, it's a Band-Aid. And sometimes you need a Band-Aid. I mean, you need a Band-Aid. But if your whole body is bleeding, a Band-Aid is good. It will help one part of it. But it's not getting to any of the core reasons about why you're bleeding. It's certainly not treating the whole body. And I, so I, I see it as short-sighted in that way. Um, people running it are hailed as heroes. The guy running it in New York is a Time 100 hero. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, it, there are definitely well-meaning people that, that think we should have these everywhere. Um, my other problem with it is actually it's only in Harlem right now. It's only in the poorer communities. And, you know, Harlem has its own problems and a pot dispensary that's trying to get there. And it has a methadone clinic. And it has a lot of things that the residents are like, 
If you really want a supervised injection site, which by the way, attracts drug dealers and users, because that, that, that's another big issue around it, then why are you putting it in Harlem? Put it in Soho. I mean, if you're, if you're like a progressive person, you know, because the people that all want it are you really, you know, usually not the ones living in Harlem. Those residents don't want it. Um, so there are social issues, social justice issues there too. Um, I think the jury is out in terms of what is, what are these things doing in the long term? Because if you are revived with Narcan, 12 to 15% of those people revived with Narcan will die anyway within a year, which is terrible. That tells me that we got to do more than Narcan. And Narcan is only working on certain opioids. Well, guess what? It doesn't work on the opioid now most found with fentanyl, and that's the xylazine, which is this tranquilizer for animals. Narcan doesn't work. And we have put all of our eggs in the Narcan basket, so to speak. And I'm, again, I was at the White House 10 years ago when we were saying that at the very least, it was much more controversial than Narcan, but we were saying that at the very least, ER first responders need Narcan. We were pushing for that. That was controversial. Now we're saying everybody needs Narcan. Of course, everyone should have it. Uh, absolutely. It's a, I mean, it's true. Dead people can't recover. We hear that all the time. We need people to recover to get them help. But the idea that we're just going to give someone Narcan and then let them go back to the same experience that they're having before, that's a recipe for disaster. And the data shows that. And I think we have a very hard time having that, that Narcan then what conversation. Because we're very defensive about, well, we just need Narcan, Narcan, Narcan. Well, okay, then what? And we haven't done enough to think about how do we get people in the throes of a disease whose hallmark is denial, how do we get people motivated enough to get help? That is the central question. Um, because you know we hear a lot about wait lists for treatment, and there are wait lists in some places, but I'm telling you, and I don't know what it's like in this county, it's usually not wait lists. It's waiting for people to realize that they have a problem so that they can get help. That's the waiting we're doing. Now, are there wait lists? Yes. Is treatment accessible? It's not nearly enough. Even people who want treatment, it's, a, it's often a bureaucratic nightmare to get it. To get someone in a program is not easy. It, in this country where I can Google anything in a heartbeat and I can listen to any music that's ever been recorded in the last 150 years in a second, and you know, all of this, we should have a much easier way for people to get help. And in a country as rich as ours, we have the, we have the capacity economically and otherwise. We just, again, we haven't made it back to the beginning. We have not made it a priority. And we're paying the price, we're paying the price for that. Um, where I live in Vancouver, the problem is so bad that there are actual drug user un unions, okay? A unions of drug users, where this is a union, where they are giving out packaged heroin and methamphetamine because they think at least it's not laced with fentanyl. What has been the result of that? It's not good. Vancouver, actually, and British Columbia, if you think you have it bad here, the statistics in British Columbia are about du almost double what they are in the United States for overdose. Um, and so, by the way, BC, British Columbia, Vancouver, I'm just using this example, it is the most progressive. You know, we have, it's free healthcare for anybody who wants it, you know, the Canadian system. Um, addiction has been treated like a disease for 30 years. They've, they've used the term harm reduction in official policy for 25 years. Okay, So if anybody is a case study for an example of all the harm reduction you want and Narcan and they've had an injection site for over 20 years, 
it's Vancouver, it's British Columbia, but interestingly, they have the worst opioid problem in the Western Hemisphere. Again, that tells me we have to do something differently. We have to do more. We have to think better. Some people think, well, why don't we do what Portugal does? Have people heard of Portugal, the example of Portuguese drug policy? Yeah. A lot of people think Portugal legalized drugs because similar to Oregon, they did decriminalize personal possession. And when I first heard that, I thought, oh, okay, well, then they legalized drugs, I guess. But then I looked into it a little bit more, and I found that they actually didn't do that. What they did is they invested in treatment. They invested in law enforcement with open-air drug markets. They do not tolerate open-air drug selling. Very interesting. Uh, and they have these commissions where if you are... If you have a personal possession of drugs, it's true that you won't go to a criminal court. In that way, they did decriminalize, but it's a very different in, in, in the U.S., what we would call decriminalize, because they went to these commissions. It's almost like a mini court, like an administrative court, actually, where there was a social worker, a doctor, a lawyer, etc., and they assessed your substance use. And if they thought it was more than just the recreational, which I hate the term recreational drug use because... Drugs are not a sport. And recreation to me is paddle tennis and ping pong. But um, anyway, you know what I'm saying when I say that. Um, Low-level personal drug. If it was beyond low-level occasional use, you would go to treatment or whatever. They would, this commission would, would, would decide what treatment is best for you. Now, this is in the context of a country of you know, three, basically six million Catholics. I mean, it's a very homogeneous society. It's, 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 you know, it's a socialist democracy. It's very different. It's been free health care for a long time. And you know, culture is very important when you implement policy because, again, it's like alcohol prohibition. Um, when the culture is what it is, it's good luck. It's, you, know, you can have the law, but it's gonna be very difficult. Actually, where alcohol prohibition, by the way, has been implemented in communities that have traditionally eschewed alcohol, it's actually been quite successful. There are certain communities in Alaska which only recently repealed alcohol prohibition. Um, because in there, it was culturally acceptable where they were to prohibit alcohol. Um, there are communities in, in, in uh, Sweden and Scandinavia that have long prohibited alcohol. It's very normalized there. But the, my point is the culture matters, right? Not just the policy. And so, you know, anyway, they've, been, they've done this. But what I like to tell people, and on my next book, I'm, I'm going in detail about this, is that this is not, a, they did not legalize drugs, which some people think. And they have a different cultural context. Could we learn from some of it? Yeah, I think we actually could, but we have to adapt it to our context. Um, in Oregon, they claim to be doing what Portugal is doing. They're doing nothing like what Portugal is doing because they're not closing open-air drug markets. They're not diverting people into treatment, and they're not investing into treatment. I mean, Portugal invested millions of dollars in treatment. Oregon has not done any of that yet. I think they're trying to fix it now because even the far-left legislators realize that this was done very, very wrongly. And so they are trying to fix it there. But it's very different than what Portugal's doing. Drug courts, I already talked about. They've been established for a long time. They're proven. We need to, I mean, there's, there's not that many of them, though. That's the issue. They need to be taken to scale. They need to be automatic, not this boutique thing. If you happen to have a charismatic judge in your county that believes in this, they'll do it. That's kind of what it's been like. Like, you have the guy that is, like, the different judge than the other ones who's willing to do it. It, it can't be like that. And if we want to make a difference, it cannot be boutique. All of these things are like little boutique programs. We need to make them centralized and, and mainstreamed in our justice system and in our healthcare system. 
Um, there's something called Hawaii Hope, which is, which is probation reform, essentially. It's basically testing and sanctions. It's saying rather than the old probation way, which is one probation officer for like, you know, way more cases than they can handle, occasional testing, occasional, it's basically, you're definitely gonna be tested this week. And if you test positive, you're not gonna go to jail for a week, but you're gonna go to jail for a day or two, just enough that it's gonna just like, not destroy your life, but disturb your life a little bit. Like you're not gonna see your kids this weekend. You're not, you're gonna have to get off of work. You won't be paid that day, like just enough. And what they found among methamphetamine users when they basically did the threat of a day of jail, if they tested positive, that reduced the methamphetamine use by over 60%. That's responding to incentives because they knew that that was gonna be rushed in the system and that was gonna be implemented quickly. Deterrence in the criminal justice system is not how severe your penalty is. It's how certain your penalty is and how close your penalty is to your crime. So you're not waiting. You know, it's kind of like if you're, you know, in some ways, it's like when you're talking, if anybody who has kids, and I have a three-year-old now, so if I tell my three-year-old to clean her room, if I tell her, you know, if you don't clean your room, you're not going to watch Daniel Tiger right now, that is a big, she will clean her room because she wants to watch Daniel Tiger, right? But if I tell her, uh, her name's Lua, if I say, Lua, if you don't clean your room, there's a 50% chance that in six months I'm going to ground you for a week, <laughs> she's not going to respond to that. And our criminal justice system, to no fault of one group of people, but the way it's evolved, that's how we, that's how we think we're going to deter crime. We say that if there's a 30% chance that in a week or a year, you're going to have a penalty of a very long penalty. That's not, I mean, criminals like kids or people with, um, uh, with, with, with like addictive behavior, compulsive behavior, are not responding to those kinds of, you can make it the most severe penalty, they're not going to respond to those penalties. They're going to respond to something much quicker and it does not have to be so severe. It's like if you don't clean your room, you just won't watch Daniel Tiger for 30 minutes. You're not going to be grounded for a year, your month. Um, and they did that in Hawaii. They're doing it around the country now, this probation reform, and it's actually having really interesting results. It doesn't work for everybody. Some people do need formal treatment. A day in jail is not going to stop their drug use. They're that far along. And again, it's, it's a spectrum. And those folks actually in Hawaii, at least, they're referred to drug court, which is a formal program. So it's a nice interplay there. They do this in South Dakota for drinking and driving. They, they, they were, for, for drunk drivers, they're, they're doing this. They're doing, like, rat, like you will be, if you were have a DWI, you will be tested once a week, you know, for the next six months. And you have to call in every day. And some days you won't be tested, and that's fine. But if your color comes up, you are tested. You have to come to the station immediately within, like, an hour and, and blow. And so, again, and that has worked. Um, in Texas, they invested in reentry because we know that if you leave prison, you're like 70% more likely to get rearrested within a year. It's the same kind of thing I was talking about with Narcan. You know, it's not like these people who, who, who are suffering from these diseases or have these disorders, they're not a mystery. It's not a mystery of who are these people. It's not a mystery. 70% of people in the criminal justice system have a drug use disorder. We know who, who is the compulsive user, just like you know, I mean, you know the people who commit 80% of the crimes in your county. They're not like new people that you've never seen. But we've done a very bad way of managing those people. And so in Texas, they said we can either spend $2 billion on a new prison, 
because we're going to have people coming in. Or we can spend half a billion, still a lot of money, on, uh, and less than that even, on reentry programs to make sure that if you leave prison, you're not going to come back. They did that. And lo and behold, they did not have to build a prison. Because it wasn't cheap, <coughs> but it was cheaper than prison. And they were able to, to, to stop that. So there are many ways to reduce incarceration, related consequences, addiction, <coughs> crime, without legalizing drugs, without sort of going to these extreme, um, extreme solutions. We need a comprehensive approach. I didn't talk about all of them today. <coughs> Some of that approach is international as well. Um, and, you know, I have to say the most important word of the day, prevention. We do not invest in prevention at all. Like, it's really embarrassing, actually. A country with this, you know, we have a national education system that's very complicated at state, local, federal levels, and we do not invest in prevention the way, and it would pay so much money back to us if we did. We often wait for the problem. You know, and sometimes, <clears throat> this is how I feel about legalization, too. It's like we have to burn our hand on the stove to be convinced that the stove is hot. <laughs> Otherwise, we won't be convinced. Well, I wish we could have seen that the stove was hot with our own eyes and realized that we didn't want to put our hand there because now I have to get surgery on the hand and I have to do all these things. I have to go to rehab and I have to... And that costs way more money than just trying to convince me that that's hot. <clears throat> but we don't do that and we need to. Also, early intervention too. You know, when someone is in the beginning of using, we need to intervene before it becomes a full-blown addiction. Because like, like, like I said, it's a um, spectrum. <clears throat> and for those in recovery, we need to celebrate recovery. There's over 20 million people in recovery. Addiction is the only disease that you're a better person after you had the disease than you were before it. <clears throat> Think about it. You're, you're a much better person after it. It's the only one. We need to celebrate that. We need to show people that there are examples of recovery. <clears throat> By the way, the most effective recovery we have is free. And it's in every community. And you can call it what you want, but the 12 steps, and you know there are different versions or whatnot. And, but whether you look at it from a scientific point of view, and there was just recently a big review of it, or you look at it just from a common sense point of view about connecting with people and about being accountable. That's what it is, accountability. Remember we talked about that. <clears throat> that, that free program that is in every single tiny little city state Zoom that you can go to right now if you want to is available for free and for any, everybody. And there are different paths to recovery. That path has been the most successful, I think. But there are different paths, and they're all, you know, medication-assisted treatment is another path, which, frankly, I don't think it's either or even. I mean, it can be both. But there are things that do work. So we're kind of being sold this bill of goods that nothing works. We need to have, you know, supervised injection sites. We need to sell addictive drugs to help our economy. And there's really nothing else we can do. We hoped we can keep people alive, but that's basically it. But we want to give people, we don't want just them to be alive. We want to give them a life worth living. And when people say, well, we just need to meet people where they're at. How many people have heard that before? Well, obviously, we, if somebody, we do need to meet, that's, but that's like saying, you know, we're breathing air. Of course, we're meeting people where they're at by definition. <laughs> we're not not meeting them where they're at. There's nowhere else to meet them. We have to meet them where they're at, okay? I met you where you're at. You're here today, right? If I wanted to talk to you, I had to meet you where you were at. I mean, this, 
these things that get thrown around, but we, we like to say, meet people where they're at, but don't leave them where they're at. That's the important part of it. Yes, we meet people. We don't want to judge. Yes, people are going to have very complex issues, usually substance use, mental health issues, economic issues, criminal issues often. We don't want, we want to, but we want to bring them to another place. We don't want to just leave them where they're at, give them Narcan, give them a safe place to get bleach and needles and crack pipes, but then we're leaving you where you're at. And we're just hoping that you're going to get, like, wake up one day wanting to get help. And 90% of the time, you're not going to do that. You're going to die. But we're hoping that you're going to do that. And we'll see you later because we don't want to judge you. That's kind of where we are right now. And gosh, if we go down that, that path, you think 120,000 deaths is bad? It can get a lot worse. BC is showing that it can get a lot worse. It's 50% higher there every day. So we need to have many, much more comprehensive solutions and um, obviously compassionate solutions, but realizing that this is a very unique biobehavioral disease. It's not like any other disease, it's different. Um, it's not a moral failing either. But we want to be a society that, at the end of the day, our North Star, I think, should be to discourage the use, like we discourage speeding, not encourage it. And if, you, if you're not discouraged, it doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean we've given up on you. It doesn't mean you have no worth. You know, because that's often what works. Like, if you say that you discourage Kevin, you must mean that you are judging them and that you want them to rot in prison. No. No one's saying that. We want to get you help, but we don't want to leave you where you're at. So that's, I think, what it has to be all about. So thank you so much for, for having me this morning, for being here for breakfast. And I'd love to take any questions if we, if we have any in the audience or comments. Do we need a mic? Or I mean, I can hear. I can repeat the question if we don't have another mic. Yes? Do you, do you think that the um, prescriptions that are written by doctors have caused our drug problem? Well, I think it was one of the factors that definitely contributed to, you know, the last 20 years, the rise in overdoses, because basically we had kind of unlimited prescriptions, but we had no limits, okay? And that led to a, really a culture of dependency, which then when we clamped down on prescriptions, a lot of people who were using said, I got to find my next opiate fix. And if I can't find it from my doctor anymore that I'm gonna go to the streets, that I'm gonna go to heroin, or, and then now the supply of heroin is laced with fentanyl, which is killing people. So I think it does, a lot of the origins of our, what we're currently going um, for, what we're currently going through, I mean, does come from that. But I also can't say with a certainty that if we didn't have that, we wouldn't be here. We could still very well be where we are today, but I think that that, that, that did fuel it. Yes? Well, what didn't work was that there's been no, there's no accountability. And so it really wasn't about treatment over incarceration. It was simply about, oh, you're using drugs. Well, what I used to do is write you up for it and send you to a diversion program, a treatment program. I mean, they weren't throwing people in prison for drug use in Portland, Oregon. That wasn't happening before this, okay? So what they would do is they would like write you up formally. You'd have to usually appear somewhere. A judge would send you to a diversion treatment court or something. Now, what it is is, you're not going anywhere. I'm writing 
something, I can't even ask for your ID. Your name, you can say your name is Mickey Mouse, actually, and, and many people have. So there's no real name, but um, you're, you have like fentanyl on you that you're like openly using. And so all I can do as a police officer, it, or there's other people who can do this too, is give you a, like a ticket and you can pay $100, which I don't know if any fines have been paid, honestly. Um, or uh, you can call this 800 number. So you promise to call this 800 number, you don't pay the fine. And so what's happening? People aren't calling the 800 number. Those that are, are not following any of the instructions. Because that's 0.85% of those cited have gone to That means less than one, fewer than 1% of people who have been given the ticket have called and got, and we don't even know if they, by the way, completed treatment, okay? But they went to treatment. They did the first step, less than 1%. So it's not really a program to get people into treatment, which is how it was sold. And the amount of money was spent on implementing that program? Yeah, I mean, they're spending money implementing that because it's a whole new way of doing this. And um, now, again, they are trying to do some, ref I mean, because everybody plain as day can see that this is like, a complete failure. So it's not even a partisan thing anymore. Um, now the Democratic governor is like, okay, yes, this is a big problem actually. So they're trying to like reform it by giving it some teeth, get, you know, making kind of lipstick on a pig. I think I mean, sort of making something look a little bit better. Yeah. Well, I think that's a problem. And no matter no matter what we try to implement, uh, mm -hmm. I, I have a personal issue with uh, grant-funded programs mm -hmm. and. Oh, yeah. in, on, on all levels of, of um, public and private uh, organizations. Um, so when we, and with that being said, because there's a lot of money being thrown around now with the opioid study. Oh, yeah. So uh, when we talk about really prevention being the key, in my mind, I go back to uh, um, that went in the schools. Um, oh, dear. Dear. dear, thank you. <laughs> Which really was horribly ineffective. And I don't like to think of mine or if that was New York State, I don't know. Um, but what, mm -hmm. what research is there available that um, gives more credence, not so much like to ACE scores and, and mm -hmm. environmental factors, mm -hmm. but personalities, hedonic tone, I think is a, is a term that's being used and that's being mm -hmm. investigated more mm -hmm. in, terms of, in terms of how an individual uh, in their personality mm -hmm. reacts to a <coughs> situation. Uh, how, how can some, are there any programs that look at not so much um, uh, bringing it to fifth grade health sciences, right. but, but rather more in like for example, teacher education and, and recognizing some of the um, challenges that children face that are proven well, to them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's where social and emotional learning can come in. I think it's where you know we have things that are not just one-shot programs. I mean, there are some effective one-shot programs like the Good Behavior Game and things like that. But in terms of something long-term, we don't have that many great things to choose from. I will tell you an interesting story about Dare. You know, Dare started in, in Los Angeles, the police chief, Daryl Gates, in the 80s, in the height of the crack epidemic, um, as a proactive way for law enforcement to interact with kids to tell them to say no to drugs. And, you know, it was 
I think a, the original program was a program for the time. I mean, it was another era. And it was basically what was found was, as you kind of referred to, didn't really reduce drug use among kids. What it did do, though, interestingly, the original program, is bring community relations a little bit better together. Because you had cops interacting with kids, like in the inner city, not in a negative way, in a positive way. And that kind of gave birth to community policing and did some things. The second thing, just again about D.A.R.E., is that what's really interesting is that they listened to their harshest critics about 10 years ago or less and completely revamped their curriculum. So this idea of, of police to go in to show drugs to kids, which is what they used to do, like this is what crack looks like. If you get offered this, don't do it. That was the 80s version. It's nothing. It's totally not like that anymore. It's um, not only not like that, it's not always even led by law enforcement, but, but even when it is, it is much more about good, be good choices generally, because we know that that actually is really important. It's more important than, you know, to give people resilience skills and give them, it's much more important than to say like, this is what heroin looks like. If you see it, avoid it. Um, it's much more about resilience and the environmental factors. And they did, I don't know if they've done that. At, I don't know if they've implemented that in New York or whatnot, but I actually am close with a lot of the people there. In fact, they just asked me to serve on their board and I was doing a lot of research about them. Um, and it is still the most well-known and popular program in the country. Um, so I actually would have everybody take a second look at what they're doing because it's not the old program. It's really... It's driven by prevention scientists. I mean, they, they know, they're not, I mean, they, they realize that they, if they don't adapt, they're, they're done. I mean, it's, it's extinct. And they have such a big program and such big name recognition and business support and communities, all maybe not in urban centers, but in, especially in sort of rural areas are very much pro-dare. It's a shame to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater. And they realize that. And so they have actually very much adapted. That's, that's a footnote, because you mentioned D.A.R.E. But the main thing I was going to say is what I was talking about with social-emotional learning um, prevention. And we, we, need to, we just need to do a much better job at institutionalizing that across the country, as opposed to just like the counties that can afford it. Or even like you said, like, you know, if you happen to be a motivated person in an organization that writes a good grant and gets money to implement it, then great luck for the kids in that district. But... What about the next district? I mean, that's kind of how we've done this haphazardly, and I think we need to take a much more serious, like, comprehensive approach. Get in here, hand up. Please. Please.
is the only one currently doing that. Mm -hmm. Great. Can Thank you, you name the program? Prevention Works, it's called. No, the program that you used, you said that was. Uh, um, there's a couple, but the main one that we use is the Too Good for Drugs program. Sorry? Too Good for Drugs program, as well as <coughs> the Past Good Behavior Game. The Good Behavior Game. Yes. I was just going to say, um, I'm Jen, I'm one of a counselor in the community uh, for addiction. So I see all, all levels, you know, treatment court to, to a variety of everything that you've shared. And I really appreciate, you know, um, talking about, you know, the mind and body. And I'm hoping to see eventually in my lifetime the science, uh, the doctors, to be able to say that, you know, our head is attached to our body. <laughs> yeah. Whatever is happening in our head impacts our body. I mean, because that separation has caused such a divide in how we treat mentally and physically. Then the combative uh, doctors, what would they say about addiction, what they say about mental health, and it's not a part of the body. So just getting a universal, holistic approach would be fabulous. Eventually we get there. But I really like the harm reduction you know, information because I think they've created a harm reduction and a stigma. They blended mm -hmm. it. They put it all in a blender. Mm -hmm. And they put it out there. Yes. I mean, I think we need to remove stigma yeah. all day long. I have a dad that's a former alcoholic. I have a brother that's in opiate recovery. So I see the stigma on both ends. But I think they took it to the other side of the harm yes. reduction. We're not doing treatment. And I yes. feel, as a counselor, that it's getting burnt out, mm -hmm. I will say, that I don't want to do it much anymore. Mm -hmm. Because there is no recovery for the people that are dying constantly in our community. I, well, I thank you for that, and thank you for doing that work, which is the most important work. And, you know, it is, it is a shame when we make these, again, these false dichotomies, like you're saying, like you're saying between harm reduction and treatment, I mean, you know, and, and, and recovery, when and we, go, we really do go to extreme. And you're right, the blender, I mean, the blender of these things are absolutely happening. And I, you know, sometimes they're happening and people don't, you know, they're not like the people that are blending aren't doing it on purpose. But other times it's very much on purpose because it's trying to get people to back the Oregon style and, and frankly, just even more than that. And it's, it's a political campaign as opposed to, you know, public health and safety. So thank you for what you're doing and for recognizing that. Yes, Sheriff. Sure. Just, just for the law enforcement side of that, like, you're always looking. And you said it kind of like the scope of like this moment you just said, this aha moment. Mm. Okay, well, we just brought you back to life in a bathtub. Mm -hmm. That is not your aha moment. Because, okay, they cleaned up the scene before we got there. Mm -hmm. So we'll just say there's no crime. You have it in your system, you OD, there's no crime. Hey, you're good, good enough to walk. Have a nice day. And yes. you watch out the front door. Yes. Every now and then they take a ride to the ambulance, so they go see, maybe see the ER doc for yeah. a few minutes, and it's left, right, center, who's the president, Yes. times in, out the front door, and we leave them there. Yes. It's back to the, meet them where they're at, but get them out of there, and that, that I think, is the biggest shocking moment. Like, yeah. You, you do the, you do the, you know, the, you know, you got your Superman cape on, you come in and you did a good thing, and then you look around thinking, yeah. What, I don't say what for, but what for? There's nothing, and 
you know, maybe two weeks later you see the same guy, or maybe you don't. But, yeah. But yeah. It's, just, it's just that empty void of it's frustrating. me bringing you or anybody bringing you back to life yeah. isn't your aha moment. Yeah. And it's not. But again, I guess we can, we can extrapolate that out. Um, you know, Doxy, somebody in ER three times from heart attacks. Well, stop eating bacon and eating two eggs every day or something, but yet the next day they're yeah. in the diner eating the same thing. So I guess it is, we'll just say, kind of in us, or maybe it's not in us, depending on which side we want to look at it. But there is a hole in the whole system of how to do this. And obviously, many of us had that, if we had that solution, we'd be, you know, zooming you from Tahiti right Yeah, now. right. <laughs> But, but my point being is that, I mean, it's broken. I'm not telling you anything you don't No, want. no, it's but important. There, is, there are crutches that yet have been invented and put into use that are out there. Yeah. It's just a matter of coming up with them. No, it's important. Thank you. Yes? Um, with the, all the capitalism and the government being broke, um, do you still have hope? <laughs> That's a good way to add. Yes, I still do have hope for change. It's like we planted that. I'll give you one example. Uh, no, yeah, please. No, please. I was watching a Disney special the other day uh, called Renovations. Mm -hmm. Jeremy Renner's doing this thing with mm -hmm. Rory Milliken, mm -hmm. which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm -hmm. The biggest legal drug dealer mm -hmm. yeah. in the world. Um, and it's just, they're just so bought into it that, you know, I mean, it's Disney. And yeah. Look it up. It's, that's just a prime example. I'm yeah. Keep, but go ahead. No, it is. But I do have hope because if you told anybody 30 years ago that we wouldn't have smoking sections in restaurants, in airplanes, that we would, you know, completely change the way we treat that number one public health issue of, of smoking cigarettes, um, and still the biggest killer in America. Uh, you know, I nobody would believe it that that change would happen so quickly, and you know, change can happen very quickly. Uh, sometimes for the worse. I mean, we've seen the acceleration of legalization. In my mind, that's been a change for the worse. It's happened very, very fast, too fast, so fast that we're botching it up, tripping all the way, and still going that way, and thinking that we're you know sprinting in a perfectly clean manner. We can't even realize it. So things happen fast either way, but I do have hope. And I don't know if it's going to take 10 years. I hope it doesn't take 50 years. There will be a time when we look back, and especially on when it comes to fentanyl, when it comes to recovery, when it comes to marijuana, and we'll just say, you know, sort of what were we thinking? I mean, look how, like, it's so clear where we could have been. We knew then, you know, just like now, we knew that smoking caused cancer in the 1920s. That was public science that we knew that and yet it took at least it took until now really a hundred years to really implement that and so sometimes we learn very slowly but we are still you know barely into the 250th year of our republic and so we're pretty new very new when it comes to history and uh i you know we have to learn the hard way sometimes and we've learned the hard way in a lot of other things diseases many other things um but we do progress. I do, think, I, I do think we are progressing, even if it feels like, whoa, we're really going backwards. Because, I mean, you look at the stuff on the marijuana and the advertising, it really is like, how do people not see this parallel? Like, how, Patrick Kennedy, you know, Ted Kennedy's son, who's my, you know, partner in crime, so to speak, in this work, um, you know, uh, JFK's nephew, you know, he looks at this and says, how does the Democratic Party, this is what he says, 
which is his party, you know, and I, again, I worked for, the last person I worked for was Barack Obama. How does the Democratic Party, which embraced public health, which brought these cigarette tobacco company executives to Congress and forced them to testify, and, and they lied and said tobacco was not addictive as recently as 1999. You know, they said that. You can look it up on C-SPAN. It's up there. It's amazing to see. They said that under oath, and, and, and it was actually the Democratic Party that, that just put him through the ringer and was like, how could you do that? He says now, you know, how can that party that has that, you know, history of bringing big tobacco to account, how are we just rolling out the red carpet now for marijuana, not questioning anything when it comes to that? I mean, it's such a disgrace is the way he describes it, not me. Uh, and, um, and I mean, I, I agree with it, but that's the way he describes it. And, you know, it's just, it's incredible how blind we can be. Um, but again, I think over time, and unfortunately, sometimes it has to take a lot of people suffering first. That's kind of been the, the MO um, of our country often when we learn our mistakes. Uh, but I think eventually we do learn. And we have learned about things in the past that we never thought we would learn about or learn from. And we have. And I don't think this has to be an intractable problem. I think this is something we can learn from. But it's just going to take more than a few tries to do it. Thank you all for having me. I appreciate you coming. Thank you.